Alrighty, welcome to Vertical Life Church. For those of you that are new, my name is Pastor Joey. I just want to say welcome. We have a philosophy here at Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God. So I hope you believe and feel today that you matter. And we're excited that you are here with us today. Uh, we're going to jump right in. If you have your Bible with you, either digitally or the, the old-fashioned uh, dust collector, uh, you can uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That will be kind of the main body of our text. We are going to cover a lot of Scripture today. The words will also be on the screen if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you. But uh, uh, we're going to jump right in. We're in week four of our series called The Wind. And this series is helping us discover who is the Holy Spirit. Now, if you grew up like me, the Holy Spirit might be kind of foreign to you. A lot of people, and as their church experience is, we focus on Jesus, his cross, and that's very important. Matter of fact, your eternal destination like, is completely determined by Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So that is very important. But often, the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does is a mystery. And it doesn't get a lot of attention and a lot of focus. But Jesus said something very important in the scriptures in in John, just before he ascended into heaven, after he rose from the dead, he said, it's better that I leave so that I can send you the Holy Spirit. Now, if, if Jesus says it's best that he leaves so that the Spirit can come, then that means the Holy Spirit is very important. It's vitally important. This relationship we have with God through the Spirit is very important. And so, as we have been going through this series... In week one, we discovered that the Holy Spirit is God's connective force. He is the one that connects us to the heart of God, that helps us to not only experience God's love, but allows God's love to flow through us into other people. Week two, we discovered God, the Holy Spirit is God's source of power. Every miraculous thing God does in Scripture and continues to do today is done in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And... Week three, last week we talked about that the Holy Spirit is both the agent and element of God's baptism, that he is the agent of baptism when he baptizes us into Christ, when we get saved, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we become part of the body of Christ, we have an eternal home in heaven, our sins are forgiven, he baptizes us into Jesus, but then he also becomes the element of baptism when Jesus baptizes us into him. He is the agent and element of baptism. And so this week, we are going to look at uh, specifically that the Holy Spirit is both God's gift and the giver of gifts. He is both God's gift and gift giver. And so I want to look at a, a few scriptures as we get into the, this topic today. In Luke 11, verse 13, we're going to see that he is God's gift. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us. In Luke eleven thirteen, this is Jesus, and he says this. He says, if you sinful people know how to give, give good what? What's the word? Gifts. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who 
Ask him. He is God's gift. In Acts 2.38, on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit descends on that early church and fills them with power to be his witnesses, the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind enters the room. They go out into the courtyard and uh, thousands of people have gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue, Jews from every region who speak multiple languages. And God does this amazing thing. He begins to speak through the disciples all the different languages that were known and understood among those people, and they hear the glorious declaration of the wondrous works of God, and, and they begin to question what's going on, what's happening, well, what's this all about? And Peter stands up and he says something in Acts 2:38. Peter says, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. That's salvation, get saved. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's water baptism. He says, Then you'll receive the what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Spirit involved in the salvation process, making us children of God and beginning our relationship with Jesus, but there is another experience that is a gift from God. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit in the baptism in the Holy Spirit when He comes upon you and anoints you with His power. Now, last week, we essentially, we talked about that there are really two camps. If you've not grown up in church, then you missed out on all the political stuff and just count yourself lucky. But if you did grow up in church, you, you often understand that sometimes people don't agree about what the Bible says. And uh, when it, in regards to the Holy Spirit, there are two camps of people in regard to the Spirit's role in the church today. One is called the cessationists. They are people that don't believe the Holy Spirit gives supernatural gifts, that he doesn't do the miraculous things in the church today like he did back in the Bible. And then you have the continuationists, those that believe that he continues to do today what he did back in the time of Christ. And so we have these two camps in regard to the belief about his role in the church. In one camp, the cessationists believe today he is only active in salvation and since the completion of the scripture, that he no longer is operating in the same way since uh, over 2,000 years ago. And so those that believe, the cessationists that believe that the gifts of the Spirit, not only is the Spirit a gift, but he gives the church, he gives every believer a gift. He be- they believe that they, the gifts of the Spirit have ceased or have stopped since the completion of of the scripture. And they claim this because the belief is that the gifts of the Spirit or the miracles that the apostles did were given to substantiate or confirm the message of the gospel. As they were going around different places preaching and teaching, God would do these miracles to prove to people who didn't believe that it was true. That, okay, they're saying this, it's happening, it's, it's true. And the, when they believed, the cessationists believed when the apostles died, so did the gifts of the Spirit that they ceased. And these cessationists, they, they, they claim that the, the gift of tongues, gift of healing, all of these things have stopped. They really point to one passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and, and they use this to confirm their point of view. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, we'll read this in the King James Version. Here's what Paul as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, says, and this is the the chapter on love. This is where we get uh, the uh, most beautiful and poetic definition of love. And he addresses spiritual gifts in this chapter. uh, And he says this, beginning verse 8. He says, Charity never faileth. 
But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So as we read this verse, we see that there will be a point that tongues, supernatural knowledge, prophecy is going to go away. It's going to be done. It's going to stop. It's going to cease to continue. And those who are in the cessationist camp that don't believe this happens today, they point to this verse and say, ha-ha, see, the Bible says it. The tongues are going to cease. They're not going to continue. They will fail. And then they read the next two verses to kind of confirm their point. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 10, Paul continues, and he says this. He says, For we know in part, and we also prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away with. So this verse says definitively, when the perfect comes, then that which is not perfect will be done away with. And so he is talking about the knowledge, the prophesying, the speaking in tongues. These things aren't perfect. But when the perfect comes, those things will be done away with. So the cessationists look at this passage of Scripture, and they claim that the Bible is perfect. Would you agree? That the Bible's perfect, it's without error. There's no, there's no error, mistake. When God says something, it is true. It doesn't matter what culture tries to, to say or how they try to reevaluate uh, what the Bible should mean rather than what it does mean. The Bible is true. I believe that with my whole heart. The Bible's perfect. It is without error. So if that is true, then they claim that this scripture is talking about the Bible. It must be referring to the scriptures. So when the scriptures were completed, when John finished his revelation, that at that point there began a cessation of the gifts of the Spirit because ultimately we didn't need them anymore. We had the Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. But let me ask you this question. I'm going to ask you a few things. And again, I want to make this clear. I believe the Bible is 100% true, 100% accurate. But let me ask you this question, and feel free to answer. I like hearing you respond. Do we currently today have all knowledge? Do we know everything? Or do we know in part? We know in part. We don't know everything. We still know in part. So Paul says, I know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, all that will be done away with. And look at what he says in verse 11 and 12. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, I became a man, and I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. And now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. So if you continue in the scripture, in this chapter, where it's talking about the time of the perfection, Paul makes a pretty interesting illustration. He talks about children. He says, when you're a child, when you're immature, you have only a certain perspective. You have limited knowledge. You don't know everything that you knew when you were an adult. How many of you here, when you got to an adulthood, you realized your parents actually weren't that dumb? Can I get a hand raise? Or somebody say amen. Amen, right? There comes a point where you realize, man... They actually did know what they were talking about, and I was an idiot, right? That's what Paul is saying. When I was a child, I had only limited understanding. But when I became mature, I would have full understanding. And then he goes on to say, now we see, and he's including himself in this passage, through a glass darkly, but then there come, there's coming a time, a then, we will see face 
to face. Now, he says, you, when you are immature, you have certain behavior, but when you're fully mature, that behavior changes, and that is going to happen when we see face-to-face. And again, the immaturity he's talking about is tongues, prophecy, the gifts of the Spirit, everything that is in part today. He's saying when the perfect comes, when we're no longer immature like children, then we won't need these things anymore. Well, let's look at what he says in verse 12 again. He says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then we see face to face. Who is it that we're going to see face to face? Jesus. Is Jesus perfect? Absolutely. Without sin. Says, so the time that Paul is writing, the time that these things that are in part, that are going to vanish away, the gifts of the Spirit, knowledge, prophecy, and, and tongues, all of these things, he's saying they will vanish away when the perfect comes, and that perfect is Jesus Christ, face to face. And here's how we know that it's not just Jesus, but it's the time that we see Jesus face to face. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, Now, later in in this letter he's writing to the Corinthians, here's what Paul writes. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is the time when the church meets Jesus in the air when he is returning to set up his kingdom here on the earth. Do you believe Jesus is going to come back one day? Amen. That is our hope, that Jesus will return and make all things right again. So there's coming a day when he returns. He's going to call every believer up to himself. We're going to meet him in the air, and he's going to transform us from bodies that are stained with sin to bodies that are completely perfect, from those who are destined to die to those who will never taste death ever again, from those who experience sorrow, pain, and grief to those who never know the hardship of this cursed world ever again. This is going to be a miraculous day. But notice what Paul says that in, in verse 12, he's saying, uh, of 1 Corinthians, he's saying, right now I see in part, I prophesy in part, but when that day comes, when I'm caught up together with the Lord, when I am changed, I will no longer think in part. I will know everything. I will have all knowledge. I will be like Jesus. I will, be, I will know as I am fully known. All the gaps, all the blanks, all the questions that we have in this life will be answered the moment we see Jesus face to face. Which, if we look at the, the gifts of the Spirit as those immature things that we are doing now, what he's saying is that when we're fully mature in the Lord, when we've been transformed into this glorified state, we'll no longer have a need for tongues or prophecy or special revelation because we'll be fully complete and we'll have all knowledge. Again, do we have full knowledge now? No. Let me ask you a second question. Does the Bible contain all knowledge? No, it does not. The Bible does not contain all knowledge. Is the Bible true? Yes. But the Bible doesn't contain all knowledge. Remember what Paul said. He says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. What is the scripture? It is the prophetic revelation of the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament and is the prophetic revelation of the apostles in the New Testament who were prophesying in part. 
It is not, does not contain all knowledge. Matter of fact, to prove this point, Paul was caught up into the third heaven, was given a vision by Christ, and Jesus specifically told him not to record the things that you, that you saw. He was made aware of things. He was revealed things. He was not allowed to write in the scriptures. John, the revelator, had the same thing. He was caught up into heaven and given the revelation of the apocalypse. And even there, Jesus said, seal up these things until the end. Daniel, the same thing. There are things that are true. There is knowledge that could be had we do not have because at this point in time, we not only know in part, but we also prophesy in part. But when the day comes, when Jesus comes back, all that is in part All those blanks will be filled in, and we will have all knowledge. Though the Bible is perfect, it is not the perfect that is coming. The Bible is not what Paul is referring to. He's referring to this time of perfection, the time when we see Jesus face to face. And you see, when you go down the Scripture and you read just what the Bible says, we talked about this a little bit last week, There's a struggle when you're convinced of a position, when you're convinced that something you believe is true, when you're convinced of that, it makes it very difficult to actually believe or be convinced of anything else. And it's easy when studying the scripture just to gloss over what the Bible actually says. The Bible is perfect. It's not the perfect that is coming. It's not what Paul's referring to. He's referring to this time of perfection when the old is made new and the curse of sin is lifted and every blank, every question that we have is filled in. And so we can easily see that it is not the scripture that Paul is referring to in this time of perfection when these gifts will go away. It is the time when Jesus returns. So what the Bible actually says And what God is saying through the Holy Spirit to us is that until we see Christ face to face, until we are changed, the work and the ministry of the Spirit through the gifts will continue as a means to keep us connected to the heart of God, to help us increase in faith, hope, and in love. Look what he he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, as he's ending this passage, talking about the time of perfection. He says, now faith, hope, and charity, this is love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. And why is he saying this at the end of this passage of Scripture? It's because the entire point of the gifts of the Spirit is not to be able to do cool and supernatural things. The entire point of the gifts of the Spirit is to encounter God's love and to show God's love to other people. That's the entire point. So what is here in the present moment is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And Paul, as he delivers this address of love just after the revelation of the ministry of the Spirit, uh, he goes in, uh, this was in chapter 13. We're going to look at our main text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to show you a few other verses that confirm that, that this ministry of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, weren't just for the apostles or that time, that it continues today. Because even Jesus, our Lord, assumed that every believer would display the gifts of the Spirit in their lives. Every believer. In John chapter 14, verses 11 through 13, this is what Jesus says. He says, Just believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. He says, This is the message. This is the gospel. I've come from the Father. If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the works. Believe the things that I've done. They stand as evidence of this testimony that I give. Verse 12, he says, I tell you the truth. 
Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Again, in verse 12, he says, I'm just going to hammer this again. I tell you the truth. This is the truth. This is coming from Jesus. He says, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done because I'm going to be with the Father. Jesus said, again, don't just believe me. Believe the works. Why? Because the works confirm the message. The works confirm the message also that we preach because we're preaching the same message. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, for the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it is living by God's power. The kingdom of God, the very kingdom that we are preparing for, the very kingdom we're ushering in with the ministry of the church, is not just talk. It's not just a faith that we get together on Sundays and talk about or think about, oh, isn't it going to be cool when? It is living by God's power. It can be experienced in the here and now. The Christian life, living as citizens of heaven, is not just something fun to be a part of or to discuss. It is something we can experience in our very own lives. And maybe the evidence, and I was thinking about this week, maybe the reason why we don't see the revival that we want to see in the world, we don't see the life change that we want to see, We don't see churches filling up. We actually see churches closing down. Maybe the reason why we see that is that the evidence the world needs to see in the church through the power of the Spirit is absent because the people of God are not living by His power. But they're just having a lot of talk. And that was convicting to me. If we will do the same works in greater then that's important for us to understand because the works confirm the message. So the question is, what were the works Jesus did? He did a lot of stuff. Matter of fact, uh, at the end of John's gospel, it says that if we recorded everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain it. So he did a lot of stuff. But essentially, what was it that Jesus did? What was his work that we're going to continue on? Acts 10.38. The book of Acts, the writer of Luke says this, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? He anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So he anointed him with the Spirit and with power. We see this at his baptism as the Spirit descended on him like a dove. He was anointed with the Spirit and with power. And it says, Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Everything Jesus did in and through the power of the Spirit was to do good works, to do mighty things, and to deliver people from Satan's grasp. But notice first, the first thing it said was Jesus was anointed with the Spirit and with power. Before he could do the good and before he could heal the oppressed, he had to be anointed. But after he was baptized in the Spirit, after he was anointed, then he went around doing good and healing those oppressed by the devil. Just like we talked about last week. When we receive the baptism into the Holy Spirit, we receive the anointing of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to be His witnesses. And I want to show you something else in the Scripture, something that mirrors this in Acts 10.38. These are the words of Christ as He's referring to the church and the power that the church is going to display. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, He's talking to His disciples, but you will receive what? Power when the... Holy Spirit 
comes upon you. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus was anointed with power and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. When this happens, you will have the power to be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the world. The same power, the same spirit, and the same anointing is available to all who believe. And accompanying this anointing are the same works, doing good and healing those who are oppressed by the devil. This is the will of God for us. This is the birthright for the church. Jesus, again, in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, here's what Jesus said, again, confirming that these will be the signs of those who believe. It says, he, said, he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. And these miraculous signs, notice what he says, will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. If they drink any poisonous thing, it won't hurt them, and they'll be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. Jesus confirms again for us that for all who believe will demonstrate these things in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. The script, in, and in the scripture, if you go through the book of Acts in the New Testament, you can see every one of these gifts at work in the lives of those who followed him. Even uh, some of the more strange, he says, there'll be those who can pick up serpents or handle them with safety and, and they won't be harmed. You know, I'm just going to tell you from the bottom of my heart and with all sincerity, there will never be a time during the response time I'm going to say, Cletus, get the vipers. Right? We're not, we're not going to be like those fringe Christian groups down, down south that dangle cobras and, and wonder why they're all dying. You know, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not to tempt God. We're not to try to force him to, to prove himself. Right? This is, this is not what we're about. But the word of God is clear. When we're doing ministry, when we're operating in the Holy Spirit, there is healing and protection. And what's interesting here is in Paul, uh, in, in Acts 28, he was gathering some wood and he was bitten by a deadly viper and he just shook the thing off and was healed miraculously. And those that saw what happened were so astounded, they began to worship him like he was God because they knew that just wasn't possible. And Paul redirected them to the gospel, and they became disciples of Christ. So these, these things can be true. But on the spiritual side, that uh, the Bible also says in Luke chapter 10, 19, Jesus said that these, the word snake or serpent can also represent demonic powers, uh, demons. And in Luke 10, 19, Jesus said, Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among, what's that word? Snakes and scorpions, and crush them, and nothing will injure you. Oftentimes, the word snake or scorpion is used to signify demonic powers, and so Jesus very well could be saying that we could handle snakes with safety and not fear them. Matter of fact, that term handle with safety in the original language also means to remove from its place. So as the church is casting out demons, we're removing spirits from their place to free those oppressed by the enemy. We can do that with full assurance that we will not be harmed. We will have protection. And this is what Jesus assumed and prophesied over the church. 
So the power of the Spirit, it comes from the Holy Spirit and reveals itself in these gifts of grace that we call spiritual gifting. And now, again, there are those, and, and, and I used to be in the camp that believed that this stuff wasn't for today, that it doesn't happen, that it's not possible, that the Bible says, you know, a lot of things that you can argue against this case, but if we look at just what the Bible says, I believe that we'll be uh, confirmed in our heart that this is just as relevant today as it was back then. And so before we go into the, the scripture, the passage uh, of scripture that, that asks the question, you know, are these gifts available to everyone all of the time? I want us to set a foundation that Jesus himself said and made no distinction that these signs would follow those who believe. He doesn't say it would only follow pastors or, or people of this denomination or that race, tribe or tongue. He says these will follow those who believe. That is the foundation of our understanding of spiritual gifts. Now let's look at Paul's message about gifts where we get a large a majority of our understanding of spiritual gifts and we'll read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here's what Paul says. This is about spiritual gifts, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. He says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. For you know when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and someone else, the Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not the hand, does that make it any less part of the body? And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not the eye, would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? Our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and less important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen. 
while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. And Paul goes on to talk about love and how love is the motivating factor of everything we do, including of the spiritual gifts. It's not about the gift. It's about the love of God in us and through us. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul addresses the reality and presence of spiritual gifts within the church. In fact, it is the Spirit who gives them, and he gives them to those whom he uh, determines. And he goes into an illustration about the body of Jesus that the reality is that not one gift is more important than another. Each of us are part of the body of Christ and are needed to be healthy and whole. That it's not okay for a more prominent gift, such as a pastor, to say to someone with a less, lesser gift or less prominent gift that I don't need you because we all need each other. The whole and all the parts of the body are needed for the health of the body. Now, you have to understand that in this day and age that Paul is writing, in the early church, they had a huge issue with favoritism. They, they lived according to like a class system where, where the, the Jew didn't deal with the Gentile. The, the slave wasn't able to eat at the same table with those that were free. And even men and women, there was class warfare and gender warfare. And, and so there was a lot of issues like that in the early church. And even carrying into the church, there were issues with the different spiritual gifts. The church had a huge issue with favoritism. So Paul begins to break down that some of the different parts are, are given, but each part is equally necessary. And he begins to break down that some of these different parts are specifically appointed for the church, like apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, etc. And these are not all the gifts, but there are some that have been appointed for the church. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to set a doctrinal foundation for us that's really based on one question, and that is, what is the purpose of these gifts? What is the ultimate purpose of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to each and every one of us? And each one of us have gifts. So I want to point your attention to verse 7. Paul says right in verse 7 what the purpose is of the spiritual gifts. In verse 7 it says this. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can what? Help each other. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Each of us are given a gift, and the expectation is through that gift, we will help each other. Paul addresses this again in another passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. He says, these are gifts Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are the leaders that are appointed by Christ. He says, their responsibility is to equip God's people. So the leaders in the church equip God's people. The leaders equip the people. Who are the people? That's you all. You know, we're leaders, people, okay? 
Their responsibility is to equip God's people, and then they are to do what? His work. They are to do his work. And when they do his work, what do they do? They build up the church, the body of Christ. So leaders equip the people, the people do the work, the church is built up, and it is the body of Christ. Look at verse 13, because this relates to spiritual gifts. He said, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. When we stop knowing in part and we understand all things is when this process will stop. Verse 14, we'll no longer be immature like children, knowing in part. We won't be tossed and blown around by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special what? Work. What's the special work? It's your spiritual gift the special work that the Spirit gives you. As each part does its own spiritual gift or its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love, which is the entire point of spiritual gifts, is that we would know and experience and help others experience the love of Christ. Each gift is given. Each gift is expected to be used to help the church grow healthy and strong and to be filled with love. And the way the Spirit does this is by giving us gifts to use as we minister to one another and those even that we come in contact with so each of us can experience the heart of the Father. He gives each one gifts to encourage, to strengthen, to build up. But herein lies the problem. Because I used to look at this passage of Scripture and look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. And I would say something to the effect when I would argue against people that believe spiritual gifts were today, that he says right there, not everyone is going to have the same gift. Not everyone's going to have, you know, the gift of tongues and this, that, and the other. And there's this belief, and there are churches that expect everyone to have the same gifts, that unless you speak in tongues, you know, you're not as cool as the people that do, and this, that, and the other. And so I want to I read again 1 Corinthians 12, 29, and I want to talk about it. He says, are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret languages? Well, of course not. Here, Paul is being rhetorical. He's asking a question, and it's a rhetorical statement. And he's asking these questions because we all understand not everyone is a pastor. You understand that? Not everyone's a pastor. Not everyone is an apostle. And not everyone experiences the gift of healing. And not everyone experiences tongues. And, and, and of course, the interpretation of tongues. So because not everyone experiences this, even though he says the Spirit gives gifts to each one, if we don't all experience this, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 12, why don't, again, we see the gifts he names at work still in the church today, by and large? And growing up in the traditions in the churches that I used to attend, we used to, I used to ask this question, how come the gifts are only available in the Assembly of God church and not in my Baptist church, if they're still available today? Why don't we see them in our church, but they see them in other churches? If each of us get a gift, and these are the gifts we should experience to see and encounter and witness, why are they not in every church? So the dilemma is, and when we read verses like this, 
and we say the Spirit gives these gifts and I haven't experienced them, we really kind of go one of two ways. We either say, well, I must not be good as someone else because I don't have that gift, or we say on the other side, that must not be for today because I don't see or experience these things in my life. And it becomes a challenge for us. And as I was beginning my path to kind of break away from the the cessationist position to more of a continuationist position in my personal life, I was truly puzzled by this passage. And I was kind of going through this process saying, God, if not everyone experiences the same gift, if not everyone experienced this today, uh, then, and it's not for every believer, why did Paul not say that everyone has a gift? If we don't see all of these gifts at work in our church, well, why are there gifts of healing and tongues and prophecy and knowledge and, and these things listed if not everyone can experience them? And then he directed me to the very next verse because I had stopped short. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, and I'm going to read this in a couple different translations, but here's what he says to kind of end this rhetorical questioning. He said, so you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. That's in the New Living Translation. In the ESV, it says this, you should earnestly desire the higher gifts. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And so as he drew my my attention to this, I kind of did some digging. That word earnest or earnestly, it means with sincere and intense conviction or seriously. He said, not not everyone's going to operate in the same office, in the same position, but you should covet earnestly the best gifts. You should covet earnestly these spiritual gifts. And then my question is, is why would God, through the Holy Spirit, tell the apostle for us to desire these gifts with passion if they weren't available to each and every one of us? And as I begin to think through this, and I prayed, and I said, Spirit, what does this mean? He spoke to my heart, and he said, the reason why you have not seen the gifts in the past in your own life and in the churches you grew up in is because you've come from a tradition that doesn't encourage people to desire sincerely and pursue earnestly the spiritual gifts. You, you haven't come from a, a people that believes they even continue today, which is why they don't step out in faith to operate in their gifting. You see, and, and I begin to relate this to us, and, and even as a pastor and the challenges that I face when, when trying to shepherd and lead and encourage, if we as a people of God truly believed God would heal through us when we laid hands on the sick, as Jesus said in Mark 16, we would lay our hands on the sick. But there's an epidemic in our churches and in the church culture where people are too freaked out to even pray out in public. They can't even bring themselves to pray in front of people, let alone lay their hands on the sick and rebuke a sickness. You know, if we truly believed that we could cast out demons, we wouldn't be afraid of the dark. If we truly believed that we could speak with other tongues, we wouldn't be afraid of churches that do. You know, that this is a reality for us. We would not only be asking and sincerely desiring, but we would be waiting with eager expectation, anticipating the Spirit to anoint us with power to walk in the spiritual gifts. So, of course, we didn't experience the gifts of the Spirit. We didn't want them. We didn't want them. And I know many that will avoid churches that walk in the gifts because they're too freaked out of what that could potentially mean for their own life. And I was one of them. And the worst part is not only did we believe growing up that people that walked in spiritual gifts or had these gifts or or even spoke in tongues were weird 
That's what we believe. They were just weird. But we were also taught that there was a huge potential that those that spoke in tongues or had these strange experiences at church were actually operating under demonic influence. That it was demonic in nature. That that's not what God does. So that's demonic. They're, they're deceived. They're confused. And so I'm asking just these questions to myself and just wondering, no wonder why we weren't chomping at the bit to explore and seek the gifts of the Spirit. We were too freaked out. See, we have so many hindrances to our faith. There's fear. There's religious error. There's bad teaching that for many, it's an impossibility to seek the gifts. So, of course, not all will speak in tongues. Not all will prophesy. And not all will heal. But this last year, I came across something that I had not seen before in the Scripture, something that cleared up kind of a mystery for me in its connection to what Jesus is is teaching us and what Paul is teaching us about spiritual gifts. In Matthew 12, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and he casts the demon out, heals the man from the oppression. And these religious leaders come and begin to accuse him and say that he cast this demon out by the power of demons that you cast Satan out by Satan. And of course, this is where we get the famous uh, the phrase, a house divided cannot stand. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln that came up with that. It was Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus says, if Satan was casting out Satan, how could his kingdom stand? It's, it's not logical. It's not going to happen. He's not going to work against himself. And in verse 28 of Matthew 12, here's what Jesus says. He says, but if I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God... If I'm using the gifts of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit to cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? And we know that greater is he that lives in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. So only those or someone even stronger, someone could tie him up and then plunder his house. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And here's the part that leapt off the page. He says, so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. And this passage is, is popular. It's called the unpardonable sin, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. And it's always been kind of a puzzle. And it was always taught to me that what the blaspheme of the Spirit is, is ultimately dying without Christ, dying lost, just rejecting Jesus. But in the context of this passage, you have to look at what's happening when Jesus makes this statement. He makes this statement amid the context of delivering a man from demonic forces by the power of the Holy Spirit, but walking in the Spirit's power. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just rejecting the convicting work of the Spirit that points to Christ. It is the categorization of the work of the Spirit entirely as evil. Is that, no, that's evil. And that categorization of the work of the Spirit as evil will ultimately lead to a rejection of Christ because you won't follow or pursue the very path that it's leading you on. The work of the Spirit is to confirm through signs and wonders the message and person of Jesus Christ. These people claim that the work of the Spirit through Christ was demonic, which was their excuse they used to reject Jesus. And Jesus was warning that if you reject the Spirit's work, you will not be forgiven because His work leads to salvation and freedom 
as it points to the truth. And that same lie has been passed down through the church. Now, I'm not saying that anyone who feels that way is blaspheming the Holy Spirit because I honestly, I used to believe that way. I used to think there's a good chance that that is demonic. But what I am telling you here today, that that's a scary line to, to, to walk. When Jesus connects the blaspheme of the Spirit with rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit does one thing. It points to Jesus. It connects you to the heart of God through trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So God's love can overwhelm you and it can overflow through you. And when we reject the work of the Spirit, often it'll bring you to a faith that you can't experience because the faith brings the experience through the Holy Spirit. And a faith you can't experience is not really a faith, it's a delusion. To say something is true that you can't experience is a delusion. And those who can't overcome the enemy, who can't overcome the sin in their life for lack of Holy Spirit power will often do one of two things. They'll either opt for a legalistic religion that makes them feel like a good Christian, where their hair is combed the right way, they have the right music, they wear the right clothes, they listen you know, to, the, to the right music and, and go to the right concerts. Or they'll just reject Jesus eventually anyways. They'll just say, There's just, this is not true. You know, I used to grow up in a, in a church that believed that dress clothes, Southern gospel music, and the King James Version of the Bible is what made you a good Christian. It's just not true. What makes you a good Christian is walking in the Spirit because then you won't fulfill the desires of your flesh. For many, don't drink, don't smoke, don't swear. Attend every church service and you feel like you're living the transformed life, but I'm here to tell you Jesus died for us so that we could experience more than just a church service. He died and he rose again and he went to heaven so that we could not only be indwelled but baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you some questions as we bring this to a close. What is the point of Satan's lie that the gifts of the Spirit are demonic? What is the point? What's well, to keep us from pursuing the gifts of the Spirit? If that's demonic, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Why would Satan want to keep the church from being filled with the Spirit and operating in spiritual gifts? When we read it in the Scripture, it's because it, the gifts strengthen, build up, encourage, and empower the church. So what does Satan actually want? A strong church or a powerless church? Powerless. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A powerful church is an unstoppable church. Satan wants to rob us of our power so that he can win, so that he can dominate, he can control. But Jesus said he's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The question is, how is he building his church? Paul told us in Ephesians 4, or chapter 4, verse 12, he says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and what? Build up the church, which is the body of Christ. And this will continue until Jesus comes back face to face. The way the church is built and strengthened and powerful and overcomes the power of the enemy is that the leaders walk in their gifting, teach and train the people to use their gifting. And together we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit as ministers of Christ. We build up the church and we take back the ground the enemy has stolen in this world forever and forever and forever. This is what we're doing. 
This is what is the birthright of the church. The gifts of the Spirit are vital, and he gives each of us gifts by the measure of his grace. And it's up to us to enter into that partnership of his ministry, to step out into faith and discover his gifts and then walk in his gifts as the church of Jesus Christ. So have you been earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts? Have you been coveting seriously the gifts of the Spirit? And have you been taking steps of faith to partner with the Spirit so that through the gifts He gives you, you can strengthen and build up the church? The answer is no. And then I plead with you, will you start now? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, I just thank you for every moment, every truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation of your spirit. God, I thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ and his cross. God, I thank you that there is forgiveness in Jesus. That no matter what kind of life we've lived, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how many failures we've had, that perfect love covers a multitude of sins. And we exist today as the church to not only experience your love, but to help others experience your love. And I just release your love from heaven now in the name of Jesus. God, wash over every soul. God, I just speak to the one that came in that, that is just questioning their purpose in life. God, that right now they woke up even this morning staring at themselves in the mirror and just wondering, why am I even here? God, I pray, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus that you would touch them in their heart and reveal you are here because they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have a purpose and plan for their life, and it begins with Jesus, and it continues on until you return and set up your kingdom. God, I just pray for them right now, God, that your love would intersect and descend upon them. God, I pray for the one that had, that's doubting, that, that wonders, is the, are the gifts even available today? And, and if they are, would you even be able to give them a gift for, for whatever is in their past? God, I pray that you would intersect their life right now in the name of Jesus and help them see themselves the way you see them, as perfect, holy, spotless, and without blemish. God, that in Jesus Christ, we wear the righteousness of God, and we stand at the right hand of the Father in Christ in the heavenly places. Lord, I just call forth their identity in Jesus and I cast out all fear in the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray against every spiritual force that would try to rob us of the gift of the Spirit, every oppressive spirit, every spirit of fear, discouragement, every, every uh, spirit of unforgiveness and bitterness, God. God, I just pray against everything that is coming against the knowledge of God, tearing down every stronghold in the name of Jesus. And I ask you, Father, in this place, that you would... Begin to pour out your spirit, Lord. We receive you in faith in the name of Jesus. I call forth the gifts to arise in our church, Lord, that we'd begin to step out in faith, that no more would be a, we would even be afraid to pray. As simple as pray, God, I pray that no more would there be fear of what other people think. God, we would pray in faith and expect mountains to move in the name of Jesus. God, that when those that are sick, that they would not be afraid to seek prayer, God, that we would lay hands on the sick and see miracles, God, that you would confirm your message with signs and wonders among us in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that our church would no longer be a church that just thinks about the kingdom of God, but we walk in the power of God. That revival begins to start, that even now, God, revival would be birthed among us as our hearts are set on fire. 
with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would draw every heart. If there's someone here today that has never begun a relationship with Jesus, when the music begins to play, God, I pray that you would remove all fear and encourage them to step out of their seat, come forward, and allow us to lead them into a relationship with Jesus today that their life would be forever changed. For those that haven't been seeking the Spirit, God, I pray you draw them to leave their seat as a first act of faith, to come down and lay themselves down at your feet, Lord, in prayer, and begin to seek the gifts of the Spirit. God, I pray if there's someone that has a health issue, Lord, that they would come forward for prayer, and we could pray and seek a miraculous healing today. God, I pray that your prophetic words would flow from our church, that you would raise up someone to speak an encouraging word, Lord, and give, it and give, that, and give, that, give that word strengthening and encouragement today. Whatever you're doing, God, we just release you now to have your way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's all stand for just a moment as we go into a time of response. However the Spirit is leading you as the music plays, you respond, and in just a few moments we'll receive our offering.